Back in uh, July, I think, I started a short series, and I have no illusions about you remembering anything about what we talked about back then. (laughs) That's why uh, I'm just going to mention here briefly, we talked at that time about the human problem that we all share, which is sin. And uh, uh, Paul describes in Romans 7, uh, we have this war going on inside of us and between the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin, uh, or more commonly known as our sin nature. And then we went on to recognize some of the characteristics of the traps uh, of those temptations. Uh, then in September, we kind of transitioned from how we often, why we often fail to, to conquer sin uh, to the tremendous power that we have uh, as we live in Christ. And we recognize that the mind, will, and emotions, generally the soul, are insufficient in themselves to conquer these sinful habits. Rather, we must use the power that each of us has at his disposal in Christ. Uh, today what I want to talk about are some practical steps that we may take to conquer sin. And I'm going to ask a couple of young men to pass these out. I didn't make enough for everybody, but if you would like a list of the points uh, and some of the passages, would you raise your hand for Tyler and Johnny to pass out to you? Again, I don't have one for everybody, but if you would like one. Uh, the, uh, the title that you'll see there um, if at the top is, Yes, But How? And I stole that from some homeschooling friends of ours who <clears throat> years ago in the, when homeschooling, see, homeschooling was in its infancy, you know, everybody would get excited about it. And then, of course, the next question was, well, where's the homeschooling kit? You know, how do you do it? And, of course, they had to develop a rather comprehensive workshop called Yes, But How, eventually became known as YBH, uh, and which, according to legend, some interpreted as UB homeschooling. <laughs> but, uh, it's, the point is, uh, in our context here today, is it's easy for us to use spiritual language as Christians to encourage or exhort others. Um, but yet we provide often little practical advice about just how our friends might achieve that spiritual goal. Uh, we often encourage our friends to walk in the light, to live in the Spirit, go with God, or like we did last time, be in Christ. Uh, and it's a little bit like when somebody comes begging for food and we say, be you warmed and filled and turn away. Because uh, this is not a problem restricted to spiritual pygmies. Uh, Paul said, for I know that is in me in my flesh dwells no good thing. I want to do the right thing, but how to perform that which is good I can't find it. So it's not an easy thing to do. 
Now, I also want to recognize that the line between the objective fact, observation, uh, logical reasoning, and the subjective feelings and promptings is not always perfectly clear, but it's much easier to distinguish those two than it is the, uh, the feelings and the promptings and the temptations that we experience as opposed to God's promptings. It's harder to discern those two. Um, our job as believers is to discern and discriminate between those two, between the impulses that we have and our rationalizations as to why we ought to do something and God's Spirit moving in us. And we do that by getting as close to Him as we can, by understanding His Word as much as we possibly can. That takes time and commitment, much like we talked about today, what Jonathan talked about in, uh, in his exhortation about interpreting Scripture. And we hope to get today, at least in some sense, to that last step he talked about of understanding the text as it applies to us, understanding these principles. So, uh, this is not necessarily a 12-step program. There's only six steps. Uh, But it's also not necessarily not a six-step program. What I want to try to do here is not tell you what you have to do, but to throw out some suggestions and you use as many or as, or as few or something else that works for you. These happen to be things that have worked for some people and hopefully for some of us. So, let's start here with the first concept of engrafting Scripture into our souls. Now, James tells us in, in the first chapter of, of James that we are to put aside all evil and all sin and wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. The New American Standard uses the words implanted, and that's helpful to understand that the word needs to be a part of us. But the King James word of engrafted has a significant illustration. Engrafting among fruit growers is a process that involves taking a branch from one variety and adding it to the the trunk or the or the vine of another for example if and I'm not really up on apples but uh, I assume that a red delicious apple is good to eat okay can they nod in agreement some mom tell me that's true okay so you can take a branch from a red delicious apple tree maybe that's surplus maybe they've pruned so that it can, you know, that tree will grow better, and you can engraft it to a wild apple tree that gives you nasty apples generally. It's literally a limb transplant, and it will grow, shazam, red delicious apples. That, uh, that's what we're trying to do with Scripture. Um, we engraft Scripture... When, we be, when it becomes a living part of our lives, our daily thoughts, our will and our emotions, and we can spontaneously quote it the instant we are tempted to sin. 
So, again, yes, but how? All right. I'm just going to make some suggestions here. Um, you see if this makes sense, and if you've got a better way, do that. First, we've got to memorize Scripture. Okay? The very first step. Um, our family has fairly consistently uh, had a devotion time on weekday mornings for the last 20-some years. Um, and even though at times it does seem like some of the students have early morning ADD. Um, but we've continued on nonetheless, as they will all, uh, all confirm. Part of that time has been devoted to the memorization of Scripture. Sometimes the kids have had, you know, memory courses where they've worked on individual scriptures, but mostly it's we, we try to do it a chapter at a time, we'll work on memorizing a chapter, recite it, and move on to something else. And this was simply an investment that Christy and I thought was important because we wanted scripture in their hearts. Uh, we occasionally go back and try to review some of the old passages that we've learned. Regardless of how you do it, uh, it's important to know from memory, some scripture by heart in order to engraft and use it in the battle against sin. Now, again, of course, there are certain passages that are better than others. Uh, Romans 6 and 8 happen to be two branches that, when when engrafted, uh, will produce some great fruit in your lives. In Joshua 1, uh, it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate in it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. So another step in this process is meditation. Again, that's a fairly, you know, spiritualized word. What is meditation? Well, I can't really tell you for all of you. I can tell you that in terms of meditating on Scripture, it might mean that you focus on it, a verse or a passage uh, after memorizing it, and then it might involve repeating it a number of times, perhaps each time emphasizing a different word. Like in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, should I really be doing this? Shall we continue that grace may abound? This is us, not somebody else. Shall we continue that grace may abound? You know, why do I keep doing this? And, and on and on like that. That's one way to do it. There may be many others, but it's to try to think deeply about that particular, hopefully a, a verse or a passage that you're memorizing, that you have memorized. What does it mean and how does it apply to me in my situation? Uh, Another helpful step, I think, is to personalize the passage, the verse, by reciting it in the first person. Okay? Um, Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, May it never be. How shall I, who am dead to sin, live any longer in it? Don't I know that I... That I who was baptized into Jesus Christ was baptized into his death. And you can do the same thing with other passages. Uh, Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation uh, in me if I am in Jesus Christ. Um, another one I think is a good one to do that with is 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken me 
but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that I will be able to endure it. Okay? That's an idea about how to engraft Scripture into your soul. The next point is we want to envision ourselves to be dead to sin. The power and appeal of sin. Uh, In Romans 6 tells us, even so consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, uh, what does that mean? Well, the best example starts with, let's, let's see if we can recognize something here. Uh, do you agree? Men's, the eyes of men tend to wander. Agreed? Okay. So, let's say we take a dead man, a corpse, and we prop him up against the wall. Okay? And the wall happens to be at the airport. You all been to KC International and some of the airports. You know what you see there. Okay? People are either dressed very casually or they're spiffed up. Sometimes immodestly. Often immodestly. Okay? Now, when those young ladies walk by, what does our subject do? Okay? Get the idea. That's what it means, I think, in a visual sense, to be dead to sin. Men, that's how we should respond to those temptations. That's where we ought to be. Ladies, please understand that that's not easy, given the, or the culture, the sexualized culture in which we, we operate today. Uh, If you don't believe me, just go to the mall, stand off to the side, and when the girls walk by, watch the eyes of the guys. Where do the eyes go? Okay? Uh, Parents, it's a good exercise. When your young teen uh, wants to dress up like, I think it's called a pop tartlet, (laughs) you object... And they say, but mom, dad, what's wrong? It covers everything except my belly button. Okay. Speaking of which, the next point is make no provision for the flesh. Okay. Romans 13 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. There are a myriad of examples here. You know, we could go on and on. This is where uh, people up here don't like to be doing this, but if you've got toes, you might want to retract them or they're going to get stepped on here, probably. Somebody's toes are. Um, Teens, I don't want to talk to you about drugs and alcohol. That could be a temptation for you. But let's talk about some things that might be a little bit more common to your culture. Um, Paul says in Romans 15 that evil communications corrupt good manners. And that word there really means morals. It's, it's, it's different than may I please have the salt. Okay, it's more important than that. How we speak. Let me ask some questions to you young people. 
Are you building up or tearing down by the way that you communicate? Do you think you've been influenced by the world? Have you allowed the culture and the media to influence you? In your communications, uh, do you use language that edifies and builds up or that copies the world? Specifically, in your communications, are the word hot or sexy apart? Have those words crept in your vocabulary alongside of cool and awesome? Would you use those words around your parents? Of course, your parents really aren't part of all your communications, particularly your electronic communications. Are those words of God or of the world? Do you realize that the Lord is a part of every private conversation that you have? Now, um, I understand that those words are being used, and I don't think they're being used in all cases maliciously or with evil intent. I think they've simply become a part of the vocabulary that's the vernacular that's, that's used today. Um, but do you understand where they came from and what they mean to other people? People often object, you know, God judges the heart. Come on now, can't. Well, I understand that. God judges the heart. And it may be that you're using it in a benign way in your heart. But man judges the outside because that's all that man can generally judge. And how do you want to be judged by other people? And using those words, in most cases, will be judged in a very in a, a different way, a way that you do not want to be judged. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. In 2 Timothy, he says, flee useful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name from a pure heart. Now, I would suggest to you that it's hard to flee if you keep inviting those words and thoughts into your mind through your conversation, even if your primary motivation is simply to appear with it, to impress someone. Now, parents, this isn't our problem, is it? Or are we perhaps just as guilty by allowing the world into the eye and ear gates of our families? Nowadays, it's not just, you know, the TV. It's not just those R-rated movies. Uh, There are huge gates into our home. And unless we set up extreme safeguards, we not only allow in the world's thoughts and words and reasoning, but we virtually give strange men and women direct access to our children and in doing so, we allow a wide, a worldwide web of sin to be spun for those children. And no one is safe from temptation. Last year, in one of my adoptions that was contested by a father, he was represented in, in his appeal 
by a middle-aged attorney who, when I talked to, seemed to be a very nice guy. What was strange about it was that this, uh, this attorney um, had just re-entered the practice of law after being a district court judge for many years. He had been removed from the bench because he used his office and his office computer to view porn. And he was discovered by his staff, and uh, he was no longer a judge. The excuse that he gave uh, when asked why he had done this was that uh, the responsibilities that he had uh, as a church deacon were simply too great, and he needed to escape to this fantasy world. Years ago, uh, Christy, my wife, would get a magazine uh, published by a homeschooling mom called Gentle Spirit. Okay? With lots of articles about mothering and homemaking and Titus II and, and ads for long denim skirts. Okay? The, So you can, ima- you can ima- imagine that uh, she was a little bit surprised when it turned out that this publisher, while attending a homeschooling conference where he was speaking to women about being keepers at home, was caught in an affair with a man that she met online. She wasn't so shocked later on to find that this same individual had sued and won a healthy judgment against the homeschool leaders who had blacklisted her from their homeschooling conferences because they had revealed her indiscretion. Making provision for the flesh is now much easier than it used to be. While during the cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s, uh, uh, we had some groundbreaking or or envelope-pushing medium, you know, such things like the odd couple and all in the family, and those look family-friendly by today's standards. Um, much of the advertising today uh, relies primarily on seduction to sin of some variety. Um, the lines are so blurred anymore. Just a couple of days ago, I was, I was stopped at a stoplight, and I looked over, and there's a beer truck next to me, and it's got a website on it. And see if you can catch this. The website was... B-E-E-R-E-S-P-O-N-S-I-B-L-E. Now, be responsible. Beer responsible. I mean, I don't know if you... That's kind of a not-so-subtle subliminal message. I don't know, but it just kind of struck me as, wow. They'll do anything. Um... When it comes to, uh, you know, the, the eye traps, uh, what used to involve an embarrassing uh, look through the magazine rack and knowing glances from the, the store clerk, now is just a click away. If you've got an unprotected PC in your home, the biblical strange man or woman is literally in your home just behind the screen waiting not for you to open the door, but just for a click. And even if you take those technological precautions, 
they still have a way of creeping back in. You remember from 2 Timothy about the evil men who creep in and captivate silly women. Now, men, young men especially, often don't require the quality of gullibility to become ensnared. Uh, We simply can't rely upon technology alone. Kids and weak adults can usually get around temporary safeguards. We instead have got to rely upon God's Spirit to provide boundaries for each individual to our natural lust. I think you need the technology, you need to put the safeguards in, but don't rely upon them. Character is much more effective than technology. All right, next point. Um, We need to be careful, or excuse me, we need to compare the law of sin to the law of gravity. We've touched upon this before in the analogy that Mike brought up several months ago. Sinful habits have a strong pull on us, and sometimes it may sin, it may, may feel uh, to a, a person in sin like he's falling through, through the air helplessly. These tendencies are simply evidence of the law of sin, which Paul identified in Romans 7, where he said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Try to visualize the strong pull of sinful habits as the law of gravity. It's universal. It applies with predictable results to everyone throughout the world, to all creatures, whether we want it to or not. However, as we studied a while back, we have in our arsenal the law of the Spirit of God, which is akin to the law of thermodynamics. It may seem that sin sin sometimes just happens without forethought, uh, or we may excuse it, you know, because of weakness or circumstances, like my brother made, him hit, made me hit him, something like that. The devil made me do it. In reality, there's always some element of intent to sin, to true sin. Remember, we cannot be tempted beyond our ability to endure. That's what Scripture tells us. And just as we fall into sin willfully, a hawk or an eagle will simply attract its wings so it can dive upon its prey using the law of gravity. But that predator bird overcomes that gravity, that law, by simply spreading its wings to invoke the law of thermodynamics to lift it up to avoid certain death and gain control. In the same way, we can, in essence, spread our spiritual wings. Again, how? Well, let's just try to go through some suggestions here. At the moment of temptation, immediately begin quoting or paraphrasing the Scripture, such as uh, Romans 6, in the first person, and name the sin. Let's say it's lust. What am I thinking? Shall I continue to lust that grace may abound? That's crazy. The moment you're tempted... Simultaneously, or as soon thereafter as is safely possible, take evasive action. Look the other way. Turn it off. Just say no. Get away from her. 
whatever it takes to get away from the temptation. Instead, visualize and focus on the truths of the Scripture rather than on the temptation. Continue quoting the Scripture until the temptation loses its pull on you. And finally, remember you already have the victory. It's already been won in Christ. Uh, Knowing this, that my old self was crucified with him in order that my body of sin might be done away with so that I would no longer be the slave to sin. For he has died. He who has died is freed from sin. Okay? Another suggestion is that we become accountable to God-given authorities and or true friends. Scripture commands us to be accountable to one another. First Peter 5 tells us, uh, You younger, submit yourselves to the elder. All of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, many of us labor under the deception that we can secretly sin, and no one will ever know. And if we're discovered, there really won't be severe consequences. But God says, be sure your sin will find you out. Uh, In fact, in Numbers, uh, excuse me, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, Gospels, uh, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said, There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. We cannot hide our sin. Um, the power of shame is important If you knew that your secret sins would be flashed on that big screen in Times Square, would it make a difference? That public shame of sin helps us understand the fear of the Lord. And it's by the fear of the Lord that we depart from evil. The fear of the Lord is the constant awareness that God is watching and weighing every thought, word, action, and motive. And we talked about accountability. It needs to be with the right people. Preferably, we should ask someone who is responsible for our spiritual welfare uh, if he or she would periodically check up on us and ask us questions like, what scripture have you been studying or meditating on? Are you having victory over sinful habits? Specifically, how's your battle with anger going or whatever it might be? When was the last time you were spiritually defeated? And those are just some suggested questions that you can ask somebody to, to ask you. Now, accountability should always be discreet, but always clear enough to give you some true accountability. Uh, we're not striving for good appearances here. We're not we're trying to go on a checklist, but real success in conquering sin. The key here is to seek out an accountability partner that you trust enough to confess your faults to. Uh, This normally would be somebody who has some authority over you, but uh, it needs to be somebody who cares enough about you to point out your blind spots, to confront you about 
when you're going astray uh, and to exhort you to do what's right, uh, even when it's inconvenient. Finally, we want to, another suggestion is to recognize and obey the scriptural promptings of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's set some boundaries here. We said scriptural promptings. That gets back to the subjective issue that we talked about earlier. Uh, People will sometimes confuse temptation and rationalization with God's voice. Like the guy who said uh, many years, God told me to divorce my wife so I could marry this other godly woman. Okay? People think like that sometimes. Um, It's very simple. God's promptings will never violate Scripture. That's what we have to, that's, that's what Jonathan was talking about earlier. When you, when you hear something, you've got to relate it to the whole. You, got, you can't take things out of context. Uh, we've always got to run our promptings through the sieve of Scripture to ensure that it doesn't run counter to God's commands or His principles or even His consistent examples. Conquering sin requires we not only reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, but we must reckon ourselves also to be alive to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the command to return good deeds for evil is spread throughout Scripture. But Paul extends the application of this verse or this concept to an offensive weapon, an offensive weapon, when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God prompts us through his spirit to do certain things. When, we, when you do something, let me just ask, when you do something for somebody that does not expect it, something good, how do they respond? You know, generally, they're thankful, we hope. Now, here's a little tricky part. Because sometimes when we do good, we, we develop accounts receivable. If you do something and can give up your expectation, you are in a much better position to receive joy. It's kind of like last night, okay? In every year up till 2007, any time the Jayhawks won a football game, it was a big deal. Okay? I mean, we, we rejoiced, you know, that's Jayhawks. It was a big deal. Well, I, you know, my son got season tickets, so he let me go yesterday. And, and you know, the joy just isn't there. We expect them to win. I'm sorry, Jenna. But, and all you K-State people, but this is the year I, you know. And, and the silver lining for you is that we've lost our joy in winning any game. <laughs> And you guys are probably excited just to win one more game, just to get bowl eligible. Well, that's, you know, it's old hat now in one season. And the same thing is true when we expect somebody to pay us back. If we can possibly give up our expectations, especially with children, especially with children, and just serve God is then free to truly bless us. Either now or in eternity. When we obey God's promptings, our focus is on 
following and pleasing God by serving and meeting needs, not on the temptation to sin, because it brings so much joy. The result is that we will usually be filled with joy rather than resentment, anger, bitterness, or guilt. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'd much rather hang out with joy than those other guys. So whether it's praying for somebody that's hurt, witnessing, giving, ministry, or just a word of encouragement, you will likely be blessed with joy if you do it with the right motive. Let me ask a question. Has anyone here ever been a willing, if not eager, slave to sin? You don't have to raise your hand, but... Okay? If you have been, then you have an idea of how diligently we are to pursue and obey God's promptings. Romans 6.19 says... I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, or in the same way, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Each of us should be as eager to serve God as we once were the master of sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for just giving us your word, giving us other uh, believers to come around us and support us, uh, giving us the concept of, of engrafting your word, and having accountability, turning away from sin, and instead focusing on the joy that comes from serving you. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. Father, work in our lives to help each one of us to live in Christ day to day and use these suggestions or any others that will work in our individual hearts to conquer sin and live victoriously. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.